The Threadrow Conference occurs every two years. It's an international forum on passenger transport competition and ownership issues. The first one in 1989 was in Threadbow in New South Wales in Australia, hence the name, but since then it has been held in locations around the world. It has some very rigorous papers reporting on recent research and experience, but ultimately it pushes towards real practical solutions. The next conference will be held in Singapore in August this year, 2019. The chairperson of one of the workshops titled Beyond the Fare Box, Sustainable Funding of Public Transport by Better Understanding Service Values is Professor Roger Vickerman. He's the Emeritus Professor of European Economics at the University of Kent and we're honoured to have him on the line now. Professor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. We in Australia have some people in significant positions who live by the mantra that private enterprise, that is driven by financial profit motive, is all you need to ensure the best services. Is financial reward to the service provider the whole point? No, I don't think it is. And I think we've seen very clearly over the years in many different countries that simply handing over the provision of important public services, which is what local public transport is, simply to private provider uh, with the profit motive, doesn't actually work. And it doesn't work particularly for those who are more disadvantaged in society, who are the ones who typically need to rely on public services. And I think this is it's getting this balance right, that private investment can be important in upgrading services, but we need also to ensure that those services are being provided in the best interest of a very wide range of potential users. Yes, it's been said of the ride-hailing services, Uber and Lyft, that a friend of mine said that the circumstance that a rich person could afford to pay $100 to get to lunch on time, but if they have a cardiac arrest, the nurse won't be able to afford to pay for the service, you know, the quick service to get to the uh, the uh, emergency centre. It, it's just not a case of money in and it gives everyone the best result. I mean, that's, that's, that's a nice graphic explanation of it. But yes, I mean, the underlying philosophy is right there. And particularly, I mean, for example, in the United Kingdom where I live, the real problem about the provision of local public transport is not so much in the cities, although there are problems there. It's in rural areas where we've seen most rural areas now virtually stripped of a regular, efficient public transport service to enable people without access to cars to get to services at the same time as we've seen a removal of that backbone of, of public services from other areas. Closure of, of rural post offices, closure of local bank, um, uh, uh, local banks, so that people actually need to get into a town and then find that they don't have access to public transport to enable them to get there and back easily. Even though we might have a, a, a system that subsidizes public transport, for example, for elderly people uh, through free bus passes, not much point having a free bus pass if there isn't a bus to use it on. <laughs> Yes, yes. Sorry, I, I laugh with you, certainly not at that circumstance. The community, yeah. uh, the community benefit, of course, has also been a bit of a mantra, uh, which we often then get into a verbal fight between what might some might consider the warm and fuzzy statements versus the profit and loss account. 
the very point you are making is it that we need to work hard to get a good understanding of what that community benefit is? It is indeed, and 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 a lot of work and in uh, work that I have contributed to, um, particularly for major infrastructure projects, is looking into where there are potential wider benefits. And this comes back in terms of the provision of local public transport. That if local transport improvements, including the provision of new roads, leads to the development of new communities, which value the accessibility that they have got, is there a way of capturing that additional value that might actually otherwise go to developers or to property owners back to support the provision of good public services? And indeed, um, uh, in our conference this year, we've got a number of papers which are looking at the way that you can get this capturing the value of land improvements into a way that can help to support um, public transport services, as well as just the provision um, of services through new roads for private transport, so that everybody gets benefit from it. In a way, you're also trying to at least assess what are the costs of not doing it, that if you have people who are living in a regional area that don't have a local post office, then the cost of, of going a long distance if there's no services there is an immense imposition to them, but even if they try to do it, it's perhaps a cost on other services as well. Yes, and of course one of the problems that comes with privatisation has been that in order to be able to privatise a range of services, you have to break them up into, as it were, bite-sized chunks to enable the private sector to get a hold. And whether this is about uh, breaking up the monopoly providers um, of local bus services uh, or, or whether it's about separately privatising a whole range of different services means that you don't get that joined-up thinking that we had typically in public service areas thought of as being important that there is this interrelationship between services that breaking them up doesn't necessarily uh, provide a coherent and integrated solution and that has been you know a problem i mean certainly if you look for example at those countries which followed this privatization mantra you know going back to margaret thatcher in the uk for example seeing that the private sector could provide things more efficiently there was always then the problem that, 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 that the relationships between private sector providers was going to be one that was, if you like, could be fought out by lawyers rather than by markets, which was a strange way of doing this. And you can see this, for example, in the, uh, in the way that the railways were, were broken up, that, that it's about then deciding whose legal responsibility it is to do something rather than just getting on and fixing it. And getting that sort of balance right between the sort of the, the hidden costs that are involved in a monolithic operator, bringing them out and seeing that the transactions costs are, are, are clear and out in the market, actually identifies that those transactions costs tend to go up, and therefore the overall cost of providing the service goes up, and that will tend to be borne typically by the user of the service um, and not by anybody else. And, and that in us, it's cutting that sort of Gordian knot that I think is something that we've not managed to persuade politicians, who are the ultimate deciders on these things, is the real problem in this area. I like your comment about systems, because here we often get the notion of building a project rather than building a system. 
So if we build one big railway line, and I think you were recently quoted in your local paper, in the Kent area you do have a very fast train, but you have raised the point that doesn't solve all things to all people. There are a much more system-type approaches, not, not just in yeah. terms of getting anywhere, but in terms of value to people as well. It's right. It's back to the problem of, of as, as I said, it's, it's a sort of the bite-sized chunk approach mm. um, to this. That's a, that's a real problem uh, with this. And you can see why it's done like that. But that means that we're planning net, what should be networks in terms of tiny little bits that don't necessarily all fit together. And you can see that in all sorts of ways. You can see it right the way across Europe about the way that the actual delivery even though there is a common transport policy uh, within the European Union, the delivery of that is dependent on individual uh, governments or even regional governments, and getting them to coalesce in the way that they're doing things is a major problem. And they need to have that broad view as well, which politicians may not necessarily have. If you go back two years to Threadbow 15, they had a workshop there bridging the benefit funding gap, and you're carrying on from that. And it, there was a focus then on practical solution being land value and road pricing. Let's look at land value. I think we in Australia call that value capture. Can you get businesses to help pay for the transport? Yes, I mean, there are good examples of the way that this has been done. I mean, for example, if, if we look at the United Kingdom, which is where I'm, I'm more familiar with, uh, with things, there are a number of ways that, for example, um, a, a major development that requires road improvements, um, there is a mechanism by which the developer has to pay for the road improvements, I mean, junction improvements or whatever, uh, in order to get access to the major network. Uh, we've seen an example with the development of the Crossrail project within Greater London, which is not going terribly well at the, uh, at the end game. But we saw there the fact that they were using an additional charge on business rates for those areas that would benefit from this in order to be able to, to fund the scheme and indeed identify certain locations where there was a demand for a station on the line which the overall project did not think was viable to enable the private sector to do the development. You, you make the basic provision for a station within the system, but the actual development of the infrastructure of the station itself is then funded by a local developer on the basis of capturing the value that comes from developing the land above the station, as it were. So there are good examples where on a very specific basis, not on a blanket basis across a city, but on specific locations where you can see that it is possible to get contributions from developers to enable something to take place, whether it's on, on roads or on rail. A bit more difficult to capture that in, in supporting bus services because of the, the lack of the specific infrastructure that's involved there. But there are ways that one can think about that sort of development where developers are required to make provision for bus services to access a new large-scale development by not, for example, making the roads inaccessible to buses. Mm. which is, is something that, uh, that, 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 if you look at some developments, is very clear that, that no thought had been given to 
the possibility of, of buses penetrating the area. So, so yes, there are good examples of the way that one can one can do this, but it it's it's not necessarily as coherent as as one would like it to be. Is that a case of getting money to build it in the first place or to operate it? Because if you go back to the late eighteen hundreds in England and the development of the railway lines, there was a mass boom based on land speculation. Yeah that the upfront cost of building it was justified because they're going to sell blocks of land much cheaper. That's that's fine, but then a lot of them went broke in the operational costs over a period of time. Are we talking about ongoing funding or just getting over the first building hurdle? I think the first bit is actually making making that, that initial provision. Moving on from there to an ongoing support is, a, is of course, a much more difficult to get through um, with that and that's where you might or might feel that some form of um, uh, land uh, value taxation that enables the, uh, the local public authority to be able to provide that ongoing funding might be a, a good idea but you are indeed right that most of those early speculators in the railways went bankrupt which is probably true of most private transport investments it's a good idea to enthuse the private sector to build things which then can't be taken away and if they go bankrupt as a result of that that seems to be hard luck and you can certainly see examples of that in terms of the private building of highways across europe uh, where private sector uh, developers have essentially gone bankrupt as a result of having developed it uh, and the state has had to, to to step in so that i mean you know, it may be a good social service to encourage people to invest in uh, in private infrastructure with a view that they can then be taken over as a free good by the public sector. But I'm not sure that that would go down very well as a policy manifesto. You talked about monolithic structures or systems that can be a problem along the way. I think it was either yours or, or in one of the previous Threadbow conferences. They're talking about operators and getting direct resources and a little concern about whether their focus may be on maintaining the infrastructure or improving the service delivery or rather just boosting non-fair revenues. There, there was a suggestion of segregating roles between the operator of, say, the rail system and the operator of the non-fair component. Is that yeah. part of the need to have a, a broader view and therefore a broader management structure? An interesting point. I mean, we know, for example, um, that if you look at Japan, which has been one of the more successful privatizations of rail systems across the world, the majority of the Japanese rail companies do not earn most of their revenue from the fare-paying passenger. They earn it from the ancillary services that are provided in stations, which are great sort of emporia when you go into them it's because they get money from rents and so on. Much in the same way as, as airports gain a huge amount of funding from the, the franchises that they let within the airport terminals as opposed to the money that they gain from the allocation of slots to, to, to airlines. Whether that is better served by breaking them up or by, by allowing the, the form of cross-subsidy that is implicit in that, I think is a very difficult question to answer on, on a priori grounds. Regulators tend, airport regulators, for example, um, are very keen on trying to identify 
uh, the, the, the separate aspects of that to avoid um, uh, one side subsidizing the other um, too much in the interests of the total cost to the, um, uh, to, 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 to the passenger using the facility. And I think the same thing may well be true um, of, um, of railways. But, for example, in the United Kingdom, where the, where the major railway stations are owned um, by um, the sort of semi-public uh, network rail, such that they gain the benefit from the um, the franchises to the fast food outlets and the bookshops and the news agents and so on that are available on the stations. Um, uh, uh, it, it's still a little uh, a, a little oblique as to as to as to how that then relates to the fares that are going to be paid to the railway operator by the passenger. It's a difficult one to separate that out, and I don't think I've got a clear view on on what the what the right answer is because I don't think there is a single right answer. No, that's a very important point, isn't it? You raise the point about regional areas, and even down to the point of people in those areas may not be in as good a position to pay for services uh, as others. In Australia, we have the situation where. Um, let, let me ask this question. I've heard some research that perhaps the greatest indication of equity is land value, that if we have land value that is incredibly skewed to certain areas, then in perhaps we have failed in our system's development of serving people so that they can grow and enjoy their area forget every other parameter that perhaps the land value is the one that indicates it the best mm. uh, uh, I, I mean that in, in, in the best of all possible worlds um, that should be the case one of the problems about land value um, is that in most countries um, zoning systems skew um, the true value uh, of, of the land and so that we've, we've got a little bit of difficulty there um, in determining uh, how we actually interpret those land values as being true if you like market values reflecting accessibility and levels of service and so on because it may well be that local zoning restrictions are skewing the values of those land and that's where we've got a, a slight problem for example including in using land values or some derivative of land values um, as the basis for uh, for taxation to, to to support local services, and that's where I think we've you know we still have a problem with that. I'm not saying we should sweep away all, all zoning because I think it I think it is important, but but the zoning does skew it and can be skewed for political reasons by certain groups being able to to protect the land values in their area uh, and other groups not being able to it's very important you raise the issue about understanding the horses for courses if you pardon the pun in a transport sense that certain areas may not have the people with the income and so on to support the same sorts of systems that you might have elsewhere and so you you need in order to be fair to them to consider their own specific way to come about a solution and to pay for that solution as you say you can't just say well it worked here it's got to work everywhere else 
yeah, I, mean, I think that's right. And if you if you make comparisons between um, between Britain, uh, which in in many respects is not unlike um, uh, uh, sort of uh, not unlike Australia in terms of the way um, that its local areas, you know, we both of us probably partly from a common heritage, you know, like our little plot of land uh, and our single single household dwelling in that and that leads to dispersed development which is which is much more difficult to serve well by public transport than the more densely populated more densely developed areas that are more typical for example of many european cities you know if you compare uh, paris um uh, or berlin uh, you don't see this degree um of of single person dwellings spreading out what you get there is a high concentration in the city center and then a development of highly concentrated and in the french context very low income suburbs outside the historic city and that's much more much easier to serve with public transport because you've got those sorts of concentration um uh, you know uh, look at parks along for example look at hong kong um, where you see that the development there of a very, very effective mass transit railway system is based on having very high concentrations of population around, um, the, st- uh, around the stations uh, that, that, that are served rather than allowing the sort of spread of, of, of development right the way across the, uh, uh, the territory. So, so, so where you can actually plan development, as it was, for example, um, in Hong Kong or as it was uh, in Paris, you can do it in a way that helps to to support the public transport um, uh, element. If you allow a more laissez-faire approach um, to, 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 to development, then it's much more difficult in the long run to serve those with an efficient public transport service. You therefore need the policies, and I think you've talked about policies being, you know, you have to be very thoughtful and it just can't be one-dimensional. You need policies that are moving in the right direction with an understanding, and I think we go back to the point of actually trying to measure what the real social impacts are. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, planning became a very dirty word in the in the UK over the last few decades because it was sort of seen to be something that was sort of painted with what was seen as a failed socialist system. But if you don't have some element of planning in this to, to be able to, to identify, and going back to your point about the way that systems relate together, then you're going to find it very, very difficult to make that sort of um, uh, provision um, into the future. And you know, we see even in the, the private transport sector, a very good example of this now, exhortation of people to buy electric cars without the infrastructure being there to support um, the, those electric cars or coming on stream very, very slowly. And you know, it's all very well to say, well, if more people bought electric cars, then it'd be all right because people will provide the infrastructure. But people need to see in advance that that infrastructure is going to be there to enable them to make the investment into the electric car, and then more people would do it. But what it requires is planning, and what you've now got is, 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 a, is a hodgepodge of different systems which are not necessarily compatible with each other. So you can turn up with your electric car and find that there is a charging point for it, but that charging point doesn't relate to your car unless you've got an expensive adapter set or set of adapters um, in in the back of your car to do this. And and that seems to me, you know, sort of a, 
a nonsense of the sort of, yes, we will go, you know, we will get rid of internal combustion engines by whatever date is finally decided in the future, 2030, 2040 or whatever. But unless people can see that there is going to be the appropriate infrastructure in place, and they're unlikely to be able to, to comply with the government's exhortations in this. That's where you need a degree of planning to ensure that it, 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 it comes to pass. And it also goes right back to your first point about the need to get both profit um, uh, and uh, social benefits, because without planning, we could readily head down a path which has unintended consequences. And yeah. the... Yeah. And the the example of the ride hailing system would be part of it that we may end up with a whole yeah. pile of people but but we're not getting the benefits that we think that they might get yeah yeah no i think that's absolutely right and i remember i mean a, a, a sort of good example of of your sort of ride heading taxi thing i remember reading a, a study some years ago now which showed that the biggest users of taxis in the pre-Uber age of taxis in Los Angeles was of um, the poorest in society, mainly in order to enable them to access um, unemployment benefit offices because these were not located in high rental downtown areas that were easily accessible by public transport. They were in the low rental out-of-the-way areas which people couldn't access by public transport. So they're having to use private expensive private transport to, to access those locations. And you can see this in, as well, other examples. If, if I look in the out-of-town supermarkets that surround uh, our towns in the UK, um, majority of people drive there to do their weekly shop because the prices are lower. People who don't have access to private transport will typically, therefore, um, take um, a taxi in order to be able to get their large weekly shop home. They're the ones who can, as it were, least afford the prices that are charged by taxes. But, you know, each supermarket has got a, a, a taxi line uh, available outside uh, for people to use. And so it, it's, you know, there are all sorts of, of, of difficulties in terms of this that just make you think that that's a problem. We've worried in the UK about the collapse of our high streets, that traditional department stores um, are, are, are closing in the high street and going out of town. Um, there are very few um, major food outlets from the major supermarkets available in town centres uh, and so on, which are the only areas that are easily accessible by public transport. Is this the great value of the Threadbow conferences in that it's not just academic, although it comes from a lot of academic sources, but you are pushing towards real solutions, of which you quite readily accept that we haven't got there yet. We can define utopia, but we've got to work out how we're going to get there and what it really takes to get there. Is that the value of Threadbow's? I, I, I think it's very important to have meetings where there is a dialogue that's established between those doing, if you like, the sort of the blue skies research, um, uh, the pure academic research, and those who are responsible for implementing policies. Because, you know, I know when I go in and talk 
um, uh, to, to people who are responsible for delivering transport policy on the ground, that they, that, 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 that they will often roll their eyes uh, towards the heavens and think, you know, that this, this guy is talking purely theoretically. We can't actually deliver that. It's important for me to know how those things are delivered. I mean, some years ago, I, I chaired a, a local um, think tank on um, transport policies uh, for, for, for my city and, and being exposed to the, um, uh, the thinking of the planners and of the politicians in that was very, very important. And I think, but it was a two-way process. It's important to have that engagement, I think, uh, with this. And I think that um, I, I think the conferences like Threadbow are very, very important in making sure that we get that, but also get that international comparison i mean looking at the um at the the sorts of papers that will be in the session that i'm chairing we've got papers we're relating to things from right the way across um the world and right the way across countries at different stages of development i mean can we learn for example um from the sorts of informal transport that's available in developing countries like vietnam or indonesia for our own solutions, uh, can we um, provide for them very often the things of what not to do? I mean, I've often said that, you know, the rest of the world should be grateful for the United Kingdom because of its experimenting uh, with, um, uh, with various solutions to the transport problem in order to find out what not to do. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we need to learn from other people's mistakes as well as from what they do well. And this sort of thing, including, of course, the European funding that has been a, that has enabled um, until now for the UK um, has enabled us to, to, do, to do experiments which have been able to be replicated in all sorts of different cities to learn from best practice. And I think that's really, really important. I think that comes into a whole range of things, including overseas aid, that you should not be afraid to say it failed because you've learned something. Sometimes we say it failed, therefore we should never do anything. That's not the point. Yeah. We should we yeah. should no. learn no. from it and no. go. But that also... We, we, we should all learn from our mistakes. And also says that you should look at overseas and not just look at what they did, but why they did it and what made it yes. work. Yes. I think that, yeah. that's very important. Yes. Uh, it's yeah, lovely to, yeah, yeah. To, to talk to you because I think that in, uh, takes on the complexity of not just the monolithic thinking, but rather the a whole part of it. And I think your word engage is absolutely critical. It's true in things like road safety. We tend to lecture people when we should be engaging them in where, you know, what they're doing and why they're doing it and so on. I, I was very happy to see you have such a broad thing. You, your address is, and I think the, your Department of Economics is in the Keynes College which many people, many people interpret in a, uh, our good friend John Maynard in a very one-dimensional way, I think. But, um, perhaps you, it's nice to see that you're um, taking a broader view. I believe, actually, your college was considered to be called Richborough, which is a town in Kent, or Aslam, after an Archbishop of Canterbury. Perhaps we need a miracle to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, but the, the important point if I can finish on a, a quote from Keynes uh, the important point about Keynes said when the facts change I change my mind and that's an important thing to remember as well in terms of this in terms of our learning 
about things uh, and therefore not saying having a dog that said this is what I've said and therefore I will have to stick to it and I think that's uh, that's something that many uh, um, planners and politicians need also to take to heart. I think many transport people have been locked into a fundamentalism <laughs> that is, yes. is often done it. Uh, Professor it's uh, lovely to have your time I've taken much of it and I do appreciate that thank you very much for uh, your wisdom and your experience. Thank you, David. Nice to talk to you. And that was Roger Vickerman, who is the Emeritus Professor of European Economics at the University of Kent. We called him in the UK.